Rene Lalique stands apart from all other jewellers in that he is quite widely regarded as the genius of Art Nouveau jewellery. Curious Objects is sponsored by Rinalda House Museum of American Art, one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art, on view in the unique domestic setting of the 1917 R.J. Reynolds Mansion. Browse the art and decorative arts collection at rinaldahouse.org. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A house.org. And visit in person in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome to another episode of Curious Objects and the Stories Behind Them, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm your host, Ben Miller, and I've got a great show for you today. I'm talking with Catherine Purcell of the firm Wartsky in London about a fascinating necklace by the Art Nouveau jeweler René Lalique. Catherine is a phenomenal storyteller, and what she has to say about this piece really brings the people and objects of Art Nouveau and the Belle Epoque to life. In some ways, it's really changed how I think about this whole period, and I really think you'll enjoy it. So I encourage you to visit themagazineantiques.com, where you'll find an image of the necklace uh, and some other images and links. Finally, as the host of a new podcast, I'm relying on you guys to tell me what you like and what you don't like and what you want to hear more of. So please, if you have any comments or questions, send an email to podcast at themagazineantiques.com. I'll read it. I'll respond to you. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Catherine Purcell, thanks so much for talking to me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We're talking about a piece of jewelry, although to call it a piece of jewelry is maybe giving it short shrift because it's really, it is a, it's a necklace, a pendant necklace, but it's also, I think anyone would agree, a work of art. It's a piece by a French jeweler from the 19th century. And I'm wondering if you can give a physical description for our listeners. Absolutely. Well, it takes the form of a pendant on a long chain. Uh, the pendant itself is centered with a female bust portrait of a young woman. Most striking is the fact that she is enveloped in branches supporting pine cones and needles. The pendant is suspended with three pearls, and the chainwork uh, echoes the motifs, also bearing pine cones and needles interspersed with pearls. The piece doesn't have a single gemstone in it. It is entirely decorated with enamel in terms of the female portrait. The enamel is principally in dusky shades of blue to gray, and her hair is very dark, almost black in color. And um, the pine cones themselves are of enamel, which has been etched to give them volume. The branches so envelop her as to almost reveal her face amidst the branches. She's actually clasping one of the branches in her hand. So that is the first appearance of the piece, if you like. I want to come back to the physical form and, and the design and the aesthetics, but who is the woman? Well, that is the key question, because I've discovered that the woman in question was actually his muse. Her name was Augustine Alice Ledru. They met in her father's studio because her father was actually the bronze foundry maker to René Lalique's bronze works 
And um, at the time that this particular pendant was carried out, they had not yet married. They actually met in 1890, but married in 1902. And we fortunately have this particular jewel recorded in contemporary periodicals because it was featured at the 1900 Paris exhibition and evidently caused such a stir then that it was reproduced in uh, a number of contemporary journals including L'Exposition Universelle de 1900 by Gustave Geoffroy which was published in 1902, but was a, a resume of the entire exhibition. And equally well, Henri Vever, in his three-volume history of French jewellery, uh, chose to illustrate it. Which so... I should interject. We have in English, thanks to your work. <laughs> yes, I did translate the three-volume history into English. That's correct. So, um... so are these publications... How did you discover the, the identity of this woman? Is is it because of those publications? or It wasn't the publications that actually held the key. Uh, the first clue that I had is the fact that at the base of the pendant, um, the actual little cutout form from which the uh, center pearl is suspended is actually a cutout heart. And I'd actually never seen this feature in a jewel by René Lalique before. It led me to think that there must be some kind of romantic association between him and the sitter, if you like. And I started to read further accounts of female figures in his jewels, and it turned out that Augustine Alice did feature in a number of his works of that period, particularly before they got married. And uh, he was obviously very inspired by her. After marriage, (laughs) it's hard to motivate yourself. (laughs) Well, we hope that that's not the case, but (laughs) certainly the majority of the work seemed to to have um, been created in those earlier years. During the courtship. (laughs) During the courtship. And um, in fact, very usefully, the Corning Museum of Glass has a Bastaille featuring her, signed by René Lalique, which we have always known to have been of her. And she had quite a distinctive profile with quite a pronounced chin. And um, this is borne out by photographs of the two of them together. So this is an incredibly personal jewel. And it's by no means incidental that the motifs in the jewel are actually fir cones and pearls because pine cones in the uh, language of botany stands for eternity Mm. and the pearl because venus was born from a pearl symbolizes love so you already have eternal love in this jewel the the heart notwithstanding rather charmingly uh, as you turn the jewel over you actually find a mirror image of the jewel in chased engraved form, mm. which is very typical of René Lalique's attention to detail, the ability and in fact the the priority he gives to all aspects of his jewels, whether, for example, making a piece from plicage or enamel, but actually designing it as a choker, so only the wearer would know that it carries this great sophistication mm. of plicage or enamel, which is immediately lost when you wear it right against the skin. Sure. So in the same way, only the wearer would have known that the jewel was so elaborately finished on the reverse. 
that's a really special feature, and it makes the piece all the more intimate to know that there was an element that was reserved only for the person for whom it was made. I don't know if you find that in contemporary jewellery so often. Well, as as we know in the world of jewellery, the more you handle, the, the more you know that the first thing you do is actually to turn the jewel over, because if it's beautifully finished on the reverse, it's an indication that it's going to be fantastically made on the front as well. It's the attention to the unseen detail, which is always the key. It's like looking so, under the hood of a car. Yes, <laughs> that that's correct, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in another um, field. So I would say now that uh, we have reached a different age that does not involve years, years of apprenticeships, for example, um, as, as happened in the 19th century in all forms of the decorative arts, um, now, unfortunately, time is money, and so it is actually quite rare to find pieces that are as elaborately finished on the reverse as they are to the front. Um, very few contemporary, let's say, artist jewellers can actually put that time and effort into um, completing something mm. um, as as fantastically. Um, it may be very beautifully finished, but what, it wouldn't be carried necessarily to the same extent as you would see in it right. on the front. So yeah. this was something that really um, René Lalique prided himself on. And he stood above his contemporaries even in that regard. He did, although I would say that uh, there were some extraordinarily talented jewellers and enamelers working at the time. And um, all of them, be they Fouquet, Henri Vevert, Frédéric Boucheron, had known this era of immensely long trainings in the different fields that they specialised in. And therefore, when one reads accounts of Alphonse Fouquet and how at the age of 12 he was literally on bread and water sleeping under the workshops as he trained to become a jeweller, those stories, I'm sure, are not isolated and therefore they were trained with this exactitude to detail. It so happens that René Lalique had other talents such as an extraordinary imagination. Mm. Um, he was very lucky in benefiting from some very early patronage that helped his career enormously but René Lalique stands apart from all other jewellers in that he is quite widely regarded um, as the genius of Art Nouveau jewellery. This piece made around 1900. Today it's at Wartsky. Where has it been in between? Well, that has been a bit of a mystery. We know that it has been in a private collection for a number of decades. Beyond that, we don't know from the time that it was owned by René Lalique's wife. Until it arrived in this private collection, we don't know. Indeed, it has been lost for a number of decades because when Sigrid Barton wrote her catalogue raisonné on René Lalique, it is simply featured in black and white photographic form and the photograph is actually the very one that was illustrated by Henri Vever in his book, um, which was published in 1908. So there was no colour image available of this mm. work. So to discover, first of all, the palette in which it was carried out was a real revelation. It's in absolutely perfect condition. 
Now, you mentioned that there are no precious gemstones in this piece, and that's typical of Art Nouveau jewellery, is it not? That is, but I have to say that René Lalique was one of the very first to embrace uh, this particular aspect of uh, Japanese art. One can't talk about René Lalique without talking about Japan. Um, Japanese works of art were first seen in Paris in uh, 1867 at the Exposition Universelle, when um, for the first time the Japanese were able to organize their first pavillon, truly representative of their works of art. And this was a real revelation to fellow artists from all over the world, but particularly the French who fought over these Japanese works of mm -hmm. art. And not least for the sense of artistry that was imbued in the most modest materials, so be it basket weaving, be it the um, carving of common cow horn, um, it applied itself into every single type of material, and this was something that was not at all lost on René Lalique. And, as you rightly say, this particular jewel doesn't have a single precious stone in it, not even a semi-precious stone. It is literally just enamel and pearls. And he was so inspired by this that he himself started exploring the use of ivory and common cow horn in his jewellery as well as tortoise shell. And he exhibited for the first time in 1897 his um, display, almost entirely devoted to combs carved from tortoise shell mm. and ivory and horn, which caused a sensation. Nothing had ever been seen like this before. Really? Such artistry in very, very modest materials. And I think that um, this certainly led the way for an awful lot of other artists, such as Lucien Gaillard, who equally well started creating combs made from similar materials. I also think uh, the, the whole attitude shifted in terms of the appreciation of different types of very time-consuming techniques, such as different types of enamel, which were certainly not intrinsically valuable, but commanded a huge amount of time. The the technique of plicageur enamel, for instance, um, the building up of many, many layers of enamel from a specific contour is, is hugely time-consuming and, as I said, is, is very difficult to actually wear in such a form that it's mm. instantly revealed. Mm -hmm. So one could have, for example, a comb made of plicageur enamel. This would be the perfect jewel because worn high in the hair and they had very large coiffures at the time. Of course. Um, one would see the daylight coming through the enamels and, of course, you then had that rich panoply of vibrant colours uh, immediately um, to be seen as you walked mm. um, into a room. However, plicageur enamel is a very difficult form of uh, jewellery to wear, but obviously it's also quite fragile. It's instantly lost if you wear it as a choker, but equally well if you wear it as a bracelet or a pendant, because it will be constantly against a surface. So it was nevertheless something that was very much explored, as were other types of enamel, such as Charlevoix enamels and so on, at that time. So I think this use of non-intrinsically valuable materials was very much um, something that was symptomatic of Arnouveau, you're quite right. 
I would just perhaps like to uh, just emphasize once again why René Lalique was really a precursor in everything he did and to go back to the influence of Japan in his work because it wasn't exclusively the use of non-intrinsically valuable materials that actually was was um, so influenced by Japanese works of art but also I would say the scrutiny of the world in all its forms, the sense of the duality of nature, for instance. In Japanese art, whether you take a netsuke or a bronze, um, none of the craftsmen were uh, shy about showing the decay of the natural world. And this is something that René Lalique in his close scrutiny of nature of a child, would have very much taken on board. But I think to take it into the field of jewellery was something quite unknown. Mm. And therefore, when he, and I'm talking about Lalique now, shows, um, uh, let's say, a tiara um, that consists of branches of fern, and he's showing them under the weight, perhaps, of water. He's not showing them in the way that one might traditionally um, think of um, a botanical motif. When he also will take a leaf and shown it gnawed away at by insects. Right. This is something that was entirely new, and this close observation of nature was miles apart from the full-blown roses that one might have seen in diamond set jewelry in the 18th and sure, 19th the century. Heavily romanticized depictions. Exactly. It was it was this immense study of nature that was very much part of him and I think stimulated by seeing uh, Japanese works of art and and equally well in some of the landscapes that he showed this duality was was shown in everything. If he showed a, a very poetic-looking winter landscape, for example, with um, a landscape of fir trees with with snow on on the branches, the contours of the actual pendant would consist of the gnarled branches and tree trunks, but right down to the roots that would that would be shown at the base of the mm -hmm. pendant from say from which a pearl was suspended. This showed both sides of the natural world, if you like. You didn't just stay with the beautifully snow-capped mountains. There was always something going on underneath. And in the same way that um, one could see the beauty and the savagery of the animal world, this duality was also shown in the female figure, one of his most famous pieces um, in the Gulbenkian collection consisted of a woman turning into um, a dragonfly, but very menacing in that she appears to have claws for fingers and becomes almost monstrous, if you like. And I think this was something that had never been explored before in jewellery and was something completely new. And that's a stark contrast to, for example, Louis Comfort Tiffany, who also drew heavily on Japanese inspiration. But his glass, uh, the, the famous stained glass windows yes. that you can find at museums around the world, yes. these are beautiful garden scenes. These are unblemished depictions of nature. These are perfect sunsets you know, where every bird is properly placed, every flower is at the right proportion. Why do you think Lalique 
drawing on some of these same sources of inspiration went to the the raw uh, unbounded brutality of nature alongside the obvious um, romantic and aesthetic attraction of it um uh, that's a very good question um certainly when he was a, a, a very young he's known to have been um spending the majority of his childhood drawing nature as he saw it he felt that the that truth to nature was very very important and his his early drawings do show all kinds of insects and plants that had never really been shown mm. before but he is trying to really show that um there are two sides to nature it's going to take a certain type of woman to wear something that doesn't show necessarily the beauty of nature, um, but would have probably appealed to certain people like Sarah Bernhardt mm -hmm. because they did not want to wear jewellery that was harking back to what had been made centuries before. They wanted to make their own mark. And um, this was a way of doing it, not just through their behavior, but by immediately announcing through what they wore that they were with the new fashions, with the new designers, and particularly with René Lalique. Mm. The influence of nature on his work is, is, is hugely important. And in fact, um, the introduction of pine cones as a motif in this particular jewel is, is interesting in terms of date, because in 1898, uh, René Lalique acquired a property in, in Paris, um, to the south of Paris, called Clairefontaine, which was populated with fir trees. And it's from that date that he started to incorporate that motif in his work. There's a watch case in the Musée des Arts Décoratifs entirely decorated with pine cones. Um, there's a series of drawings by him showing them. And his first attempts at photography, in fact, um, take place at Clairefontaine, where, interestingly, he takes images of the lower part of the tree trunks and the lowest branches. He doesn't take the entire hmm. tree. And this, of course, is very reminiscent of the fragmented depiction of nature and images as seen in Japanese art. Hmm. That strange perspective in which one doesn't see a whole image but a fraction of it, and then that draws you in. This is very much how his first photographs of the pine trees are taken. That the, the motif was introduced um, from about 1899, I'd say a year after he bought the property. Um, so, yes, I have to say that's probably why I also consider René Lalique to be the genius of Art Nouveau, because it's to do with imagination and materials, and, of course, a um, quality of craftsmanship that is pretty much unequalled. We're just going to take a quick break now. I really hope you're having as much fun listening to this as I did talking with Catherine. One of the great perks of talking to antique dealers is they're natural-born storytellers, and Catherine is no exception. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the context behind Lalique's work and some of his contemporary artists, uh, Rodin and others who had strong influences on Lalique's work. I want to encourage you and remind you to go to the magazineantiques.com and look at some of the images that are posted of the necklace and other Lalique work. As wonderful and colorful as Catherine's descriptions are, you deserve and you owe it to yourself 
to see a picture of this necklace. It's a truly stunning object and you will never forget it. So go to the magazineantiques.com, look at the images. We'll be right back. Thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Rinalda House Museum of American Art, celebrating its 50th anniversary with a new publication, Rinalda, Her Muses, Her Stories, that takes readers behind the scenes of one of the nation's most prestigious collections. On the Albert Bierstadt masterpiece, Sierra Nevada, the museum's founder, Barbara Babcock Milhouse, remembers traveling to see Bierstadt's views for herself. She wrote, It was as though I was sitting in a theater with an intense drama enacted in front of me. I knew at once that Bierstadt expressed in his paintings exactly what I felt. Escape to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to experience the unique views of Rinalda House Museum of American Art. American art masterpieces surrounded by century-old decorative arts in an American country home. Rinalda House Museum of American Art in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. RinaldaHouse.org Welcome back. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to leave us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And again, if you have any comments or suggestions, send an email to podcast at themagazineantiques.com. This is something I haven't really thought about before, but what kind of prices did these jewels? Uh, this one, of course, was was made for someone he had an intimate relationship with, and so not presumably on the private market. But jewels that Lalique was making, these were a new form. They were a new idea. They didn't incorporate stones that carried value intrinsically. What kind of prices were these pieces fetching? They certainly commanded high prices even in their day. I, I have to say, so at this early point, I, w- I was um, talking about um, the the patronage that he was fortunate enough to attract. It was very fortunate for him that um, the, the great actress Sarah Bernhardt discovered his work in the early 1890s, in fact in 1892, because it allowed him to make not only uh, theatrical jewels for her, but also very personal pieces of jewellery that would make his name better known to a wider clientele, Mm. who would also perhaps not be frightened by the more avant-garde aspect of his jewels. Because certainly for a woman to be wearing a female form on her as a piece of jewellery must have been quite osé at the time. Mm Whereas previously one um, was quite happy to wear botanical motifs, um, which which really were the most common form of jewellery ornament in the 18th and 19th century, the idea of actually a woman wearing a sort of naked female figure carved from ivory as one found in works by uh, René Lalique or uh, by Gaillard or Vevert would have seemed extremely bold and would certainly not have suited every woman. And I think it took a particular type of person who was uh, prepared to make a statement in public about how avant-garde she was in terms of wearing something like this. This being Sarah Bernhardt. I think also the fact that the artistic world was very much a close one 
at that time. And for example, René Lalique and Auguste Rodin um, knew each other. One found, for example, certain subjects in each other's work echoing the other. Everyone is familiar with the Rodin sculpture entitled The Kiss. Well, uh, René Lalique himself carried out two or three jewels in which the center section um, male and female kissing. It's fascinating for me to hear about these relationships between a jeweler and, and artists. Yeah. Which, again, you don't necessarily think of as being very closely connected fields. Mm. But at this time, at least for Lalique, yeah, it, it, it was. Yeah, they didn't know each other. I mean, I, I've, I've read a book of correspondence of René Lalique's in which he talks about going to Rodin's studio. So, in fact, it's no coincidence that... Um, Rodin and Lalique should have known each other, given they both did work in bronze. Rodin, obviously so, but Lalique did create works in bronze, mm. and they shared, amongst others, the bronze foundry maker Le Dru. Right. Interestingly enough, Sarah Bernhard herself carried out works in uh-huh. uh, bronze too, and was very interested in sculpture. So one has this great connection between different art forms, different artists. And similarly, um, it's not a coincidence that Sarah Bernhardt's theatrical posters were all carried out uh, by um, Alphonse Mucha. Um, because, um, interestingly, the very flattened form that you see in the jewel we're looking at now, with the very curvilinear treatment of the hair, which helps you dated to about 1900, mm. is very much the echoing of um, the flattened form one finds in the graphic arts of the period, and particularly, yes, the theatrical posters that Alphonse Mucha, um created for uh, Sarah Bernhardt. And, and um, were one t- we look at this pendant in complete isolation, it's that line of the hair that would be the total giveaway in terms of the dating oh, of the right. piece. Because it's not the palette itself that would tell you that it was necessarily 1900 or her attitude. It, it is really this extraordinarily stylized treatment of the curves in her hair, which really does remind me of the treatment of something one would see in a poster. That's fascinating. So there are influences both from the most three-dimensional art form, that is sculpture, and then the most two-dimensional art form, which is graphic design. That That's absolutely right. What I have omitted to say regarding this jewel is that, uh, quite apart from the, the um, decoration which is borne on the back of the pendant, it also bears a brooch fitting. So the jewel can be worn in its detached form from the chainwork as a brooch, by removing the two bolt rings at the top of the pendant. One can wear it as a very long soutoir form of chain work. Um, this chain is over a meter long, and it is wow. definitely the longest chain I've ever seen in uh, René Lalique's work. And interestingly, it can be worn as both, because one of the um, great uh, fashions at the time was to wear jewellery in such a way that the chain work could create rather artistic loops to it. Mm. And what one can also do is actually hang the chain work around the neck and rather than let the pendant hang, actually raise it to the throat and pin it there. 
because by so doing, you would then create two very artistic arches either mm-hmm. side of the brooch. It also means that it would be seen at a height where it could be admired, because obviously in its long form it hangs so low that mm-hmm. one really misses mm-hmm. out on the iconography. And it's very possible that that is how it was worn in its time. That's interesting, because to see a jewel made that way today, one would think it was convertible, that it was intended to be worn either as a brooch or as a pendant. But in this case, maybe it was both at the same time. I I believe it could have been worn as both at the same time. It's also um, intriguing that this very long type of chain work would have been very suited to the new fashions of the day, because with... um, the, the, the very fashionable um, designer Charles Worth, who started creating um, dresses that did not require the wearing necessarily of corsets and actually were straight down to the ground. These very elongated forms would have been perfectly adapted to wearing very long necklaces. And when one looks at the fashions of about 1900, 1905, it's exactly that, almost a kind of Greek-style um, dress in in terms of no wasting. And therefore, perhaps this is very much the precursor of those long sort of necklaces one finds uh, during the annual fall of the 1920s as mm-hmm. well. So there's an awful lot going on in the design of this jewel and the iconography of this jewel. The way it relates, in fact, in in terms of art, be they painting or pastel, I have to say there's something very much about this attitude of this female figure with her eyes closed in a kind of mystical mood, which reminds me very much of the pastels of the symbolist artist uh, Odino Rodon actually created some five, ten years later. And similarly in his pastels you find um, female figures to about drawn to about this length, the bust length, mm. but it, uh, totally enveloped with floral motifs, very vivid colours, but they have a mystical presence to them and, and he was one of the foremost um, symbolist artists, if you like, and it's almost as if um, Lalique was a kind of precursor to this. Um, I I can only assume that um, Rodin would have been familiar with Lalique's work of art because everybody knew Lalique in 1900. His Mm. display caused such a sensation. It was something that the world had never been seen before, and the fact that so many artists actually... Uh, chose his stand as a basis for um, some of their most famous works of art. There's a particular graphic artist called Félix Valoton, who actually created this extraordinary black and white rendition of people just literally looking into his stand. And what you see is, is, is his stand in the background and all these bodies literally staring into the showcase in wow. total astonishment. Wow. And one can understand why it caused such a sensation then, because the descriptions at the time are very, very detailed and speak of uh, bats hanging from the ceiling of his stand and Hmm. gauze backdrops and furthermore the front 
balcony area of his stand, as it were, consisted of um, several bronzes of female figures um, that appeared to be turning into something far more um, grotesque, carried out in yeah. time work. These are pictured in Vivera's book. Absolutely. They're very striking. They're very striking. And one's had the opportunity to actually see some of them come up separately for sale, and I believe oh, right. there might be one even in the Gulbenkian Museum in Lisbon. Okay. They are monumental, and one can understand the surprise of people when they actually first saw these, because this was such a long way from the traditional displays of jewellery at the time. One of the reasons why people so gravitated towards his stand was that Lalique was able to borrow back from one of his major patrons, Kalus Gulbenkian, some pieces that he had made for him. Now I have to say Kalus Gulbenkian was an Armenian banker who had very quickly recognized the extraordinary talent and imagination of René Lalique and acquired works from him that um, were not going to ever be worn. They were actually going to be displayed on walls in the middle of his collection of Holbein's, Ang, wow. and other such um, uh, masterly painters. So moving even further now in the direction of art, as, uh, in, in maybe in contrast to jewellery. Absolutely. I mean, even Kadus um, Gulbenkian himself saw them as works of art immediately. And so... Not only did he um, acquire some of the pieces that René Lalique had made, but he was also able to commission works from René Lalique, where Lalique had full knowledge that he could let his imagination go wild because they actually could be totally unwearable. Mm. And this explains, for instance, uh, one of the wilder pieces um, in the Kalus Gulbenkian Museum in Lisbon, which consists of a... A tiara composed of a cockerel's head clutching an amethyst. Um, fantastic chokers decorated with uh, lakes consisting of opal, and mm. um, the 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 tree trunks shimmering in in chased gold. Uh, one also found um, corsage ornaments consisting of intertwined snakes which suspended ropes of pearls from their gaping jaws that measured half a metre long. And all these rather macabre um, <laughs> types of jewels that I don't think any woman would have liked to wear. Those might fit in on the red carpet these days. Well, who knows? I mean, certainly if one wanted to cause a sensation. Uh, um, this was a huge feather in René Lalique's cap, that he was able to... Um, create these extravagant works of art that were being entirely financed, that were being borrowed back for exhibitions and therefore um, w was a great sort of publicity coup mm -hmm. for him, but um, that he did not have to have his work defined by the fact that it had to be wearable. I think that makes a very big difference. And these are the works, frankly, that are his most famous still today. One of the things that's always been interesting to me about Wartsky is how well-researched all of your objects are. And, you know, I'll say to listeners that if you have the opportunity to visit Wartsky uh, in their shop or at one of the shows that, where they exhibit, 
if you pick out a piece that you like the looks of and ask about it, odds are you'll hear a wonderful story about it. And that storytelling, I think, is such an important part of of being a dealer in antiques and jewelry to be able to sell not just the object, but the aura and the history and the people who have owned it and used it. Is that part of what draws you to the discipline? Yes. In fact, my my encounter with Wartsky was um, a totally chance one because I had studied history of art and I wanted to work with paintings and sculpture. And um, it's quite by chance that I found myself being interviewed at Wartsky, which I thought at the time was a picture gallery. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Because we never use the word jewellery in um, publicising a position for security reasons. And I therefore thought that's where I was coming to for my interview and was absolutely amazed to find the only work of art in terms of paintings was one of Queen Alexandra. And That's I had hilarious. never heard of Carl Fabergé. I was a total hippie and had no desire at all to look at jewellery, never mind work with it. Really? And um, was incredibly fortunate in working with two people like Kenneth Snowman and Geoffrey Munn, who was embarking on his first book at the time, because their knowledge was monumental, but more than anything, their passion was contagious. They were incredibly generous with their knowledge, and they encouraged me to pursue any form of research that I wanted to in my own time, if I were interested in anything, and slowly began to really look at jewellery for myself, not from a gemological point of view, because I was always very much drawn to the artistry of jewellery. And it was the craftsmanship involved and the techniques that really drew me, as well as the inspiration behind the pieces. I want to wrap up by asking a a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. And one of those is for a piece of advice that you would give to a collector who's just starting out in the field, someone who's maybe just encountered Lalique or Art Nouveau, someone who's just getting interested in jewelry of any kind, what's a piece of advice that you would give to someone who's uh, just feeling their way into this area? I would say handle as much as you possibly can. One can read as many books as are available. One can look at as many images on the internet as you care to. And of course, now that's a very useful tool. But it's the handling of the piece in the end that will give you the most possible information, examine exactly how it was put together, how many techniques were involved in the work, how was it built up, the weight, the choice of materials, nothing is chance. So it's by handling as much as you can and being able to compare pieces that really is how you learn the most. And... um, be brave, walk into jewellery shops, however intimidating they look. Go and handle whatever you can before auctions that are Mm -hmm. available to you. It does take bravery because I know that I was very shy about doing such things myself. But that is really the only way to learn. It's the hands-on experience. The more you handle, the more you can also tell whether something has been tampered with in some way. Whether you feel whether the texture of something feels slightly awry, whether you suspect it may have been re-enameled, for instance. Mm -hmm. Whether 
marks, um, maker's marks, date marks may be superimposed where the certain marks may have been etched out even. Um, the most abominable things happen that you would never guess at when you're starting out. And I think it's only by close examination that you will learn the most. But it does take a lot of bravery. <laughs> I'm very well familiar with that. But uh, there are plenty of friendly jewellery dealers. Well, we <laughs> pride ourselves on being friendly jewellers. I mean, I have hugely benefited from that myself. And uh, we've helped so many people in their projects and thesis that they might be writing. And, and, and we feel so blessed ourselves that we were given this chance to... Um, work with people who are so generous with their knowledge and the more information that you can give out about things and help people it always comes back to you it always somebody will remember you and be, will be thrilled to show you when they have something interesting uh, that you can learn from that you will feel as passionate about as they do and that is something that um, really I hope is part of the Wartsky ethic is is really trying to communicate to people why we are passionate about the pieces that we were lucky enough to have. Now, for more experienced collectors who might be listening right now, what's a mistake that you sometimes see experienced collectors make that you would caution against? I think when one starts off as a collector, one inevitably starts off fairly modestly because your means are probably quite modest sure. when you start off. And then as you learn, your tastes become more and more refined and one becomes braver about buying more significant pieces. What can then be difficult is actually refining your collection to rid yourself of the first pieces mm -hmm. that you acquired. Because they may have all sorts of rather nostalgic connotations to them because it's the first piece you bought. Or, but there's no doubt that what makes the strength of a collection is the universal strength of the pieces. And sometimes one comes across collections where there are, let's say, five or six masterpieces. And then there are maybe more pieces that are more modest or middling pieces. And I would always urge a collector, if they can, to perhaps just go for the very best. Because in the end, it's, it's the very best that will really hold their own in whatever context. Well, Catherine Purcell, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure talking. It's been my pleasure too. Thank you. Curious Objects is sponsored by Renolda House Museum of American Art, one of the nation's most highly regarded collections of American art on view in the unique domestic setting of the 1917 R.J. Reynolds Mansion. Browse the art and decorative arts collection at renoldahouse.org. That's R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-A house.org. And visit in person in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. I want to remind you one more time to go to themagazineantiques.com to look at some pictures. You won't regret it. And again, send any feedback you have to podcast at themagazineantiques.com. If you like what you heard, don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen. It really helps me out. And make sure you're subscribed so that you get all the future episodes. We've got some great pieces coming up for you. In the meantime, Curious Objects is a podcast from the magazine Antiques. Today's episode was edited by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm your host. 
Ben Miller. Till next time.